Hello, and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broader reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institutes for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, Office Coordinator at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week, we are joined by Dr. Philip Seaton, Professor in the Institute of Japan Studies at Tokyo University of Foreign Studies, to discuss content tourism, travel behavior motivated by narratives, characters, and locations from pop culture. Philip explains how content tourism stands out from film or literature tourism through its transmedia approach, the term's origins in Japan, and the global nature of the phenomenon. We hope you enjoy the show. Good evening, Philip. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Good evening. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Well, the way that I got into my academic career is really a series of accidents or coincidences. As a history undergraduate, I had absolutely no plans of being an academic, let alone having any academic focus in Japan. But after graduation, I got a job teaching English on the JET program in 1994, and one teaching job led to another. Eventually, I realized that if I wanted to make a living as a teacher, I wanted to focus on Japanese war history and to teach at the university level. I completed my DPhil in 2004 and then worked at Hokkaido University for 14 years. My DPhil and first book were about Japanese war memories with a focus on Japanese media representations. Of the Second World War. But Hokkaido University is also very strong in tourism studies.、Um, from about 2010, I teamed up with departmental colleagues to begin the current contents tourism project. In particular, I've formed a strong research partnership with Yamamura Takeyoshi, and we've done a number of books, journal special editions, and co authored papers together. This partnership has continued since my move to Tokyo University of Foreign Studies in 2018. So, in a nutshell, I have two main research areas. The first is Japanese war memories of the Asia Pacific War. And the second is contents tourism,、uh, with a particular focus on tourism induced by popular culture representations of Japanese wars from the 1850s to the end of World War II. Excellent. So, to start with, could you offer us a definition of content tourism? Who are content tourists? Where do they go and why do they go there? Well, our research project has produced two main definitions. The first is the one that we used in our 2017 book, Content Tourism in Japan. In that book, we defined content tourism as travel behavior motivated fully or partially by narratives, characters, locations, and other creative elements. Of popular culture forms, including film, television dramas, manga, anime novels, and computer games. In other words, it's very close to what's usually called film induced tourism or literary tourism and so on in English. However, the key idea behind the term contents tourism is that people who travel because they're interested in popular culture are not necessarily accessing the narrative world via one media format. Take, for instance, Fans of Harry Potter. They've read the novels, watched the films, watched fan produced videos on YouTube, surfed through the Pottermore website, and played computer games. 
They're interested in the transmedia world of Harry Potter and not a specific media format. This is why we talk about content tourism rather than film tourism when Harry Potter fans go to King's Cross to see Platform 9 and 3 quarters or to Universal Studios Japan to see the Wizarding World of Harry Potter attraction. The second definition is the refined version crafted by Yamamura Sensei in his chapter for our 2020 book. It's a little long, but please bear with me as I read it in full. Quote, Contents tourism is a dynamic series of tourism practices or experiences motivated by contents. And contents have been defined as information, such as narratives, characters, locations, and other creative elements that has been produced and edited in popular culture forms, and that brings enjoyment when it's consumed. Contents tourists access and embody narrative worlds that are evolving through contentization, namely the continual process of the development and expansion of the narrative world through both mediatized adaptation and tourism practice." End quote. The fundamentals have not changed, and this second definition does not invalidate the first. Rather, the key development in this second formulation is the idea that tourism has an integral part to play in the development of the narrative world. This is the process of contentization. In other words, the narrative world that fans enjoy is constantly being expanded by new films, spin-off works, and so on, as well as through the development of tourist sites. Furthermore, fans are active participants in this process, not only as consumers, but also as producers of and participants in events related to the contents. In one of the important early case studies of contents tourism in Japan, fans of the anime Lucky Star became involved in the local shrine festival in the town where the anime was set. Fans also become involved in establishing the tourist trail by doing location hunting and identifying other sites that they feel have a connection to the narrative world. So to come to the second part of your question, who are the contents tourists, where do they go, and why do they go there? First of all, we must see contents tourism as a demand-side phenomenon. In other words, it's the motivations of travelers that determines whether it's contents tourism or not. Lots of people go through King's Cross Station every day, but only the ones who go there to feel close to Harry Potter are the contents tourists. However, within contents tourists, there are varying degrees of motivational strength. Strong fans of a work will travel long distances specifically to visit a particular place. At a more casual level though, some people will think, oh, during my holiday to Japan, I really should see something linked to manga and anime. Or they'll arrive in their holiday destination, look through the pamphlets picked up at the local tourist information office and think, oh, I didn't know that such and such a drama was filmed there. Why don't we go and take a look tomorrow? This is more on the casual sightseeing level of contents tourism. And some people who look like contents tourists are actually just tagging along and very difficult to categorize as contents tourists. Anyone who's ever traveled in a group of family or friends will know this situation. Granny's not really very interested in going and meeting Mickey Mouse, but because she wants to see her granddaughter happy during the summer holiday, they go and spend the day together at Disneyland. 
And then there are the people who get somewhere with no idea that it had a connection to a film or story. But then while they're on holiday, they have an experience that piques their interest in the story. And then after their holiday, they go and watch the film and enjoy it because they've done the tourism first. Then the memories of the holiday take on a new and special dimension. In short, there are so many different ways in which people can be content tourists. At a basic level, however, the connection between a tourism experience and a mediatized narrative world must be in there somewhere. And they can go absolutely anywhere. It could be a theme park like Universal Studios, or it could be the museum dedicated to an author like Jane Austen. It could be a filming location. One trend we find, particularly in anime tourism in Japan, is that the first time a local community realizes that their town has been the model for an anime story is when the fans turn up unannounced and start looking around places that had never before been considered tourist sites. I see. It's interesting that you raised the demand side aspect of content tourism. In the introduction of the 2020 book, Content Tourism and Pop Culture Fandom, Transnational Tourist Experiences, which you co-authored with Takayoshi Yamamura, Yamamura writes how content tourism was first coined by the Japanese government in 2005, where a narrative is created for a region based on an atmosphere or image which can be exploited as a tourism resource. With this in mind, is content tourism something driven more by the fan base or by regional and national governments looking to cash in on pop culture? Well, on a purist level, I want to say content tourism is fan driven. However, in reality these days, it's a mixture of both. The main reason that governments, municipalities and tourism promoters became interested is because they realized that fans were doing content tourism in significant numbers without any tourism promotion. So you mentioned the 2005 report by the Japanese government. Part of the background context to that report is the 2004 Winter Sonata boom. Winter Sonata was a Korean television drama that gained a lot of fans in Japan. The Japanese government saw how many people were booking holidays to South Korea and thought that the popularity of Japanese manga, anime and dramas could become a tourism resource for Japan too. But it was not simply a case of one Korean drama suddenly opening policymakers' eyes. Actually, there was a long history in Japan of tourism associated with historical dramas in particular, and especially the tiger dramas, which are shown on Sunday evenings on NHK. The tiger dramas are usually year-long dramas, and they started in the 1960s. We actually have evidence going back to the 1960s that these dramas were increasing tourism at sites related to the plot or leading characters right from the outset. A local government cottoned on to this and started lobbying for their local heroes to be featured in particularly samurai dramas. Then there are also uh, plenty of examples of tourist sites that have been established by local or national government and that from the very beginning were sites of content tourism. So anytime you visit one of the many bungakukan in Japan, that's content tourism. Bungakukan are literary museums and are often built by municipalities to honor a famous local author or famous local authors. They can sometimes also double up as community centers, local libraries, and, and so on. Sometimes the process is fan-led 
and sometimes the process is local government-led or driven by a corporation. However, one key characteristic of contents tourism is how unpredictable it is. There have been many expensive failures by governments and corporations who built theme parks or resorts or attractions based around the narrative worlds of popular culture, only to see them fail miserably as business ventures. People tend to think that their pop culture hit of today will still be bringing in hordes of tourists in 15 to 20 years time. They're usually completely wrong, unless the contents have proven beyond doubt that they have transgenerational appeal. Extensive investments in contents tourism attractions is highly risky. There were many painful lessons learned in Japan in the 1980s and 1990s. So these days, the main exhibition related to the annual Tiger drama is only ever a year-long exhibit open while the drama is on air. Once the drama is finished, it's taken down. It might receive half a million to a million visitors in the year it's open, but everyone knows that numbers will drop off drastically when the national attention has moved to the story and characters of the following year's drama. So this exhibit is planned simply as a temporary exhibit. If you look at the main places that are successful year after year though, in, in Japan that's places like Tokyo Disneyland, Universal Studios Japan and so on, the secret of their success is the constant updating of their attractions so that they generate repeat visitation. Those sites that rely on a single set of contents are highly vulnerable. Most cannot sustain themselves financially and will either go bust or require long-term public money to keep them open. Usually the only reason which local governments will commit to long-term funding is when the facility is considered important for local heritage and identity, and it has multiple uses. This is the context in which a literary museum to a famous local author, which doubles up as a community centre, can secure funding from local government in the long run. Thank you for that extensive explanation. If I may go off on a tangent a bit, one example of contents tourism that I've come across traveling in Japan has been around some of the biggest manga stories, such as One Piece. And I remember reading an article about a One Piece statue that was erected outside of Osaka Castle, which had nothing to do with Osaka Castle. And the location did not relate to One Piece in any particular way, but by making a One Piece statue on that location, it drew One Piece fans to the statue to get their pictures taken with it. So surely that's more of a, a government-led initiative to take the success of a large franchise and tie it to a location to bring people to a certain location. Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of occasions on which you know, local government uh, have tried to cash in on uh, the popularity of, of particular works of popular culture and, you know, very few are bigger than, than One Piece. But the example that you've given there is quite interesting because, you know, putting up a statue actually doesn't generate any revenue at all except the hope that, uh, that fans will be coming to Osaka and perhaps spending a few nights in Osaka and perhaps going into Osaka Castle uh, because they're there to see the, the One Piece uh, statue. When we're looking at these different you know, examples of sites that contents tourists visit, 
One of the things we're always looking out for is, is how they operate as commercial ventures. And there are very few corporations that are simply going to put up a, a statue in an unconnected place and let the fans go into other people's attractions. So that's the type of project that only a local government would get involved in because they're hoping to get people into Osaka and spending money in Osaka's hotels and in Osaka's restaurants and in Osaka Castle, rather than getting any money back to the producers of, of One Piece. I see. Thank you. Now, your book is clearly not all about Japan. What other examples have you found of content tourism elsewhere in the world? Um, yeah, the, the Channel View book um, was intentionally uh, not only about Japan and intentionally published in a tourism studies series. It's not in a, a Japanese studies book series. One of the biggest things that we hoped to achieve in the book was to prize the concept of contents tourism away from its Japanese context. Now, ultimately, contents tourism is a theoretical concept with global applicability. The fact that the term emerged in Japan is, is to us largely incidental. Ultimately, contents tourism exists anywhere there's a transmedia dissemination of a narrative world and associated tourism. So the Star Wars universe is disseminated via film, animation, games, and endless spin-offs. Star Wars tourism to us is contents tourism. And I've already mentioned Harry Potter. That's contents tourism too. Any famous historical figure whose life has been depicted in multiple novels, films, plays, or any other works of entertainment can also trigger contents tourism. Actually, this is a very common pattern and we've suggested the term heritage and or contents tourism to refer to such instances of visits to pre-existing heritage sites inspired by recent works of popular culture. Then the work of any famous author whose works have been adapted for screen or stage comes within contents tourism too. In the Japanese context, this can include the manga that becomes the anime and then live action film, such as Attack on Titan or or One Piece. In the UK context, um, we've got you know, authors like Sherlock Holmes or Charles Dickens. These days, I think most tourism phenomena triggered by mediatized popular culture are transmedia in nature. However, this does not mean that the idea of content tourism renders concepts such as film tourism or literary tourism obsolete. Indeed, we've never advocated abandoning those terms which emerged primarily in the English language academic literature. Take Lord of the Rings, for example. Nobody who was a fan of J.R.R. Tolkien's original novels was going to New Zealand as a contents tourist in the half century between the publication of the novels in the 1950s and Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films in the early 2000s. So Lord of the Rings tourism in New Zealand is film location tourism. However, since the films, Tourism in the UK connected to Tolkien, such as the Middle Earth Festival held near Birmingham or the Tolkien Society events held in Oxford, are now much closer to contents tourism. For a lot of these fantasy type stories, when the novel is set in an imaginary place, the film or TV dramas create the real place on Earth for fans to visit. Game of Thrones tourism in Northern Ireland and Dubrovnik is another such example. 
And then within Japanese pop culture, there are many futuristic fantasy stories. One we've talked about in our research is Ghost in the Shell, whose various anime and live action versions have generated tourism in the places that served as model locations or shooting locations, such as Hong Kong, Kobe, and Wellington in New Zealand. I explored all these ideas about what does and does not count as contents tourism in my chapter about Jane Austen tourism in the 2020 book. To me, the interesting thing about Jane Austen is that we have clear evidence of literary tourism in the 19th century. There are people who could only ever have read the novels, who've also left evidence in the form of letters and diaries, that they traveled to places mentioned in the novels. However, once we start getting radio and screen adaptations in the mid 20th century, the transmedia preconditions for contents tourism have started to emerge. The major transition of Jane Austen tourism came from primarily literary tourism to clearly contents tourism um, in 1995. And this is when the BBC drama Pride and Prejudice was aired. Colin Firth's Darcy ignited the contemporary Austen mania and turned Austen's work into a, a truly transmedia phenomenon and also a major tourism phenomenon. Now, in, in my view, it's very difficult to call Austen tourism only literary tourism. It would be an incredible Austen purist who refused to visit Lyme Park, where the Pemberley scenes were filmed for the BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, on the grounds that it's unconnected to the novels. I think what I was also trying to achieve in the Austen tourism research is to turn on its head a common preconception that exists within academia. That preconception is that when we analyze Japan or any other non-Western part of the world, we have to somehow make it fit into theoretical frameworks and concepts developed in the West. How often have we seen Marx, Foucault, or any of the other big theorists brought into discussion of Japan? Now think of how often we have seen this process in reverse. When we discuss British culture or society or any other Western culture or society, how often do we bring in the great theorists of Asia, the Middle East or Africa? Virtually never. Well, we, you know, we might consider you know, Edward Said, but you know, he spent much of his career in the American system. So um, you know, he was very much an insider um, in that respect to the Western academic um, world. So you now what this um, really all tells us is that, that there's this uh, self-confident assumption on the part of the West that theory developed in Europe and the Anglophone world of North America, Australia, and so on, somehow explains life on Earth. But theory developed outside the West remains relevant only where it was developed. Well, in contents tourism, we have a concept that makes a nonsense of this assumption. Contents tourism theory was developed in Japan, but is better ex at explaining a quintessentially British phenomenon, namely tourism relating to Jane Austen, than the theory coming out of the English-speaking world. This is not to say, of course, that Western scholarship has not noticed transmedia culture and so on. It's the amalgamation of transmedia storytelling theory, also known in, as convergence in academic speak, and tourism studies theories that's the key here to contents tourism. If you look at the scholarly interest in tourism induced by pop culture entertainment, 
By the late 1990s and early 2000s, both in Japan and the English-speaking world, there was a growing recognition of the phenomenon. But English language scholarship became focused on media formats, film tourism, drama tourism, literary tourism, and so on. Japanese theory was the first to break free from this concentration on the media format. The term media tourism also exists in English, but this is so wide it can cover absolutely anything. After all, tourism, tourism brochures are media, TV commercials are media. We wanted to focus on works of popular culture whose aim is to entertain by telling a story. Their aim is not to induce tourism, but these works of popular culture induce tourism nevertheless. Well, why did this theory develop in Japan? Well, I think we can attribute it to the significant and early development of transmedia storytelling in Japan, particularly in the worlds of manga and anime. With so many works being released across multiple platforms in quick succession, Japanese scholarship just went straight to focusing on the narratives, characters, locations, and other creative elements as the real driving force behind this kind of tourism induced by popular culture entertainment. I'd like to develop on that to take a look at the origins of content tourism a bit more. Some of the examples that are given in the text, including your own chapter on Jane Austen, obviously predate the term content tourism. How far back have you found examples of this, and why is the term only just coming to prominence in the 21st century? Well, in some ways, content tourism is a very 21st century phenomenon. So much of what we consider to be archetypal content tourism today is rooted in the practices of the digital area. So location hunting, using global position systems and Google Earth, or sharing selfies on social media, joining online communities of fans who then meet up at places in the real world connected by the, their favorite contents. All of these things, of course, just have a history of, of a decade or a little bit more, namely from the birth of social media and smartphone technology. But if we go back to the original definition of contents tourism that I gave at the beginning of the podcast, we can see that behaviors meeting the definition go back centuries. In Japan, we have ample evidence of tourism induced by popular culture going back to the Edo period. So take, for example, Matsuo Basho, the famous haiku poet. He traveled around Japan visiting places that had been made famous by other poets. And then his writings inspired others to follow in his footsteps. Basho lived from 1644 to 1694. He was both a content tourist fitting our definition and the inspiration for subsequent content tourists. Of course, his journeys were a world apart from the smartphone-wielding anime fans of today, but the underlying experience of travel to a place that has been given enhanced value and meaning by its appearance in a work of mediatized culture is exactly the same. The Japanese scholar Masabuchi Toshiyuki hit the nail on the head, I think, when he referred to this type of person as monogatari o tabisuru hitobito, or the people who travel a story. The physical attractiveness of the place being visited is not as important as the meanings associated with it. And that is a human characteristic that has been with us for centuries, uh, even millennia. It might also be a little provocative to say this, but Christian pilgrimage to holy sites also bears the hallmarks of contents tourism. After all, the stories of the Bible take place in specific locations, 
and have been recounted down the ages in various formats, from oral culture to the written word, to plays, and more recently, film. People travel in large numbers to holy sites as a result of hearing these stories. It's not surprising that the idea of popular culture uh, pilgrimage, therefore, has emerged in both English and Japanese. Indeed, in Japanese, the term coined by fans themselves is seichi junde, literally sacred site pilgrimage. Both religious pilgrims and pop culture fans are trying to get closer to an object of veneration via travel. Of course, Christian pilgrims do not view the Bible as pop culture entertainment, so that is where the comparison hits a brick wall. But what the history of religious pilgrimage tells us is that traveling a story is a very ancient phenomenon indeed. How many ancient storytellers were there who inspired others to visit a place to see it for themselves? We'll never know. All we can say is that traveling a story is an ancient part of human nature. And regarding the term contents tourism, why it's come to prominence now, well, I think it's a truism of academic scholarship that human behaviors always predate the terms that we've invented to describe them. In a very simple example, eating as a behavior existed before the word eat. Our very distant ancestors put things in their mouths, chewed and swallowed. They thought that this behavior needed a name and called it eating or whatever the earliest word for it was. Likewise, contents tourism was inevitably happening before the term was coined. Observation of the behavior created the need for the term. But the etymology of contents tourism is quite interesting. In Japanese, the term is contents tourism, written in the phonetic script katakana. In other words, both contents and tourism are loanwords from English. This combination of two loanwords became an original Japanese concept and has now made its way back into English as new English terminology. It's difficult to say when these loanwords entered Japanese, but contents is believed to have become widespread in the creative industries in the 1990s. However, going the other way, we have a much more precise idea of when contents tourism made its way back into English as new terminology. I'm unaware of any use in English before our research team used it as terminology at the 2011 European Association for Japanese Studies Conference in Tallinn. And then we published the first paper defining the term in 2013. That publication, by the way, was co-authored with Yamamura Sensei and Sue Beaton. Sue is probably the best-known scholar of film-induced tourism in English and published the seminal first book on the topic back in 2005, coincidentally the same year that the Japanese government first mentioned contents tourism in its policy paper. I met Sue at a lecture she gave in Tokyo in 2011. I made sure to introduce myself and gave her a brief explanation of our idea of contents tourism. She immediately saw what we were driving at and joined the project team. We've worked uh, closely together ever since, including on that first paper in 2013, the 2020 book and other publications as well. I'd like to think that the term contents tourism is now getting well established in English language tourism studies. And it's gratifying to see people using the term in their publications, even when their research has nothing to do with Japan. Oh, that's fantastic. 
I understand you have another book coming out in 2022 via Routledge titled War as Entertainment and Content Tourism in Japan. This is something we touched on in an earlier episode with Professor Toshio Watanabe looking at war memory in gardens across the Pacific. War as Entertainment certainly seems to clash with traditional notions of somber war memorial practices, however. How does content tourism at war heritage sites differ? Yes, well, the, the new book is titled War as Entertainment and Contents Tourism in Japan. We're just in the finishing stages of editing the book, and if all goes smoothly, it should be out uh, early next year. But I'm, I'm really interested in this project because the two strands of my research, war memories and contents tourism, are coming together. But actually, it's the second major project on this topic we've done. In 2019, we published a special edition of the Journal of War and Culture Studies. But this time for the book, we've been able to take a much more holistic approach to wars throughout Japanese history. Yes, much of, of war commemoration in Japan is very somber, and the rhetoric of peace and never again is absolutely ubiquitous. But regarding this kind of somber war memorial practice, well, all I can say is that for pretty much any war apart from World War II, War in Japan is basically treated as entertainment. Think of the massive interest in the Warring States period, or the Battle of Sekigahara in 1600, or the conflicts of the Bakumats period. One of the biggest national heroes is Saigo Takamori, who died, of course, in the 1877 Satsuma Rebellion. But what about the Russia-Japanese War, the topic of blockbuster films like Hill 203, or Shibari Otoro's epic novel Clouds Above the Hill, which was an NHK drama in 2009 to 2011. And think of all of those fantasy wars that are such a staple of manga, anime, and Japanese science fiction. So it's, it's simply not true that most war in Japan is commemorated in a somber way. Most wars in Japanese history are depicted in the format of swashbuckling action entertainment, and fans flock to related sites as a result. Actually, this is why Japan is such a good case study to explore these issues. We have such clear, contrasting examples of somber war remembrance and war as entertainment. Japan is also a good place for observing gender issues in war remembrance. History fans or, or fans of historically based entertainment are certainly not only male. In the last decade and a half, a lot of women have been fans of historically-based entertainment, often attracted by the ikemen or heartthrob image of historical figures as created for television uh, dramas, computer games, manga, or anime. There's even been a, a special term coined to describe them, rekijo, or history girls. Just before the uh, coronavirus pandemic hit, one of the last pieces of fieldwork that I was able to do was visiting two festivals uh, related to the Shinsengumi in Hino and Hakodate in May 2019. The Shinsengumi were active in the turbulent period of the 1860s and made their last stand at the Battle of Hakodate in 1869. When I visited the festival in 2019, uh, there were many people, mainly women, doing cosplay in Shinsengumi outfits. I also saw a young woman holding up a stuffed toy of Hijikata Toshizo in front of the memorial at the place where he died, presumably so that she could share with friends on social media. During the main parade, people lined the streets to watch a mock battle. 
And then there was the Hijikata contest, in which competitors from all over the country came to perform Hijikata's death in battle. And each performance was cheered by an enthusiastic crowd. The runner-up of the competition, a woman, is such a big fan of Shinsengumi that she even moved to Hino City near where I live in Western Tokyo, so she could live in the same place that the Shinsengumi, and particularly Hijikata, came from. Of course, what makes all of this possible is that the Battle of Hakodate is 150 years into the past. So unlike the Second World War, the emotional and political legacies have faded into the past. More importantly though, this kind of entertaining tourism event is made possible because the period has been represented as entertainment in so many dramas, games, manga, and so on, that demand is created for tourist events that also treat the war as entertainment. In other words, it gives people a fun day out. But if you look back to the actual history of this period, Shinsengumi was involved in a terrifying period of politics by assassination in 1860s Kyoto. And then they fought in a number of fierce battles during the Boshin War. Even so, when war loses its political sting, it can turn into something very entertaining. We remember the heroism, the loyalty, the pure ideals, the sacrifice, and the virtues of those who took part, rather than the carnage, the pain, and the suffering. The Second World War has not slipped far enough into the past. It's not lost its political sting in Japan, which is why there are no tourist festivals of this kind relating to the Pacific War. So the questions we're seeking to answer in the, the new book are these. How does war transform from being traumatic to entertaining? And how does commemorative pilgrimage to war memorials change into fan pilgrimages or contents tourism at those same war sites? Of course, the passage of time is a key issue, as I've already mentioned, but there are others too. The most significant issues are how the war becomes re represented in popular culture. And this depends on things like victory, defeat, the scale and methods of killing, post-war situation and its long-term political ramifications. Ultimately, if historical figures or events can be glorified or idealized in popular culture entertainment, as the exploits of Shinsengumi have been done in the last 30 years or so, then a content tourism phenomenon can emerge. But it's also wrong to say that you know, more recent wars, particularly World War II, cannot generate significant content tourism. I did a paper on the tourism to kamikaze sites in Kyushu as my contribution to the special edition of the uh, Journal of War and Culture Studies. The evidence from tourism numbers in Chiran in Kagoshima is that major kamikaze films such as Hotaru and The Eternal Zero generate significant spikes in visitation. People are moved by the stories of sacrifice that kamikaze movies usually revolve around. And the number of people visiting kamikaze sites increases when these films are in the cinema. Indeed, there are various exhibits at the Chiran Museum relating to kamikaze films. Given that so many kamikaze films have been made, they constitute a genre. And fans of the genre, usually those with a conservative or patriotic uh, outlook on war history, are inspired to travel by them. This is contents tourism, pure and simple. But the type of tourism at sites like Chiran is clearly different to sites like Hiroshima. 
Many people might have been inspired to visit Hiroshima by reading novels like Black Rain or seeing one of the countless Hiroshima dramas produced for television. However, these works are not feeding on the type of conservative patriotism and kando, or namely the, the feeling of being moved, um, that the kamikaze genre offers. The positive emotions of respect for self-sacrificing heroes creates a, uh, a different set of dynamics to the, the less positive emotions of horror at and pity for the victims of nuclear attack when we're talking about the inducement of, of tourism. Tourists in Hiroshima are much more likely to be on a serious journey to think about peace and nuclear disarmament. And then let us juxtapose this for a moment with what I was seeing in Hakodate. Can we ever imagine a day when people will cosplay at the Hiroshima Memorial or have a contest to reenact the death of a Japanese soldier who dies in a banzai charge during the Pacific War? When we start going through all of these permutations and combinations of what kind of war experiences there are, how they can be represented in popular culture and how they may be traveled by tourists, I hope people can begin to see why we felt the need to do a whole book dedicated to the topic of war as entertainment in Japan uh, and simultaneously of contents tourism. Definitely, I'll look forward to reading that one. Having read your earlier work on dark tourism, loosely defined as tourism to places relating to death and tragedy, is war-related contents tourism an attempt to refine this concept or are you looking to eclipse this abstract idea entirely? Well, I've, I've just done one paper uh, on the topic of dark tourism. And in that paper, I explained in detail why I do not think there's much mileage in the term dark tourism. I think it's a, a deeply problematic concept on a theoretical level. And I've just chosen to use different terminology altogether. The problem in a nutshell is that dark is an adjective. It makes no sense without its antonym light. So the term dark tourism automatically raises the question, what is light tourism? And what makes light tourism different to dark tourism? And this is where people get tangled up in endless definitional and theoretical knots. This is not to say that the dark tourism literature has nothing to offer. There's lots of extremely good research out there. The initial formulation of dark tourism by uh, John Lennon and Malcolm Foley, for example, contains important discussion on chronological distance, namely the time that has passed since the event um, that's being traveled. I've cited um, their research in my own papers on a number of occasions, and I've already mentioned similar ideas to uh, how fast a war disappears into the past uh, a bit earlier in this podcast. Personally, I, I really like the research of Tony Seaton, no relation, by the way, um, who try very hard to get the term thanatourism established. Now, thanatourism is a, a really important concept, and on a definitional level, it's very similar to contents tourism. It's tourism motivated by a desire for an encounter, whether real or symbolic, with death. And as a demand-side concept, i.e. based on the motivations of travelers, um, I think thanatourism is, is a concept with much in common to, to contents tourism except in the type of experience that the traveler is seeking. I consider thanatourism to be a very important and robust theoret theoretical concept. However, because 
dark tourism was the more alluring term, it took off within the academic literature rather than thanatourism. Um, the term dark tourism started being used then in relation to all sorts of tourism that I think it's completely inappropriate for, um, such as Hiroshima tourism. People are not going to Hiroshima out of some kind of voyeuristic interest in death, or at least, well, there might be a few people who have those motivations, but I think categorizing Hiroshima tourism as dark tourism in a, in a holistic and general sense just feels wrong. So in war-related um, contents tourism, um, we can draw on some of the ideas discussed in the dark tourism literature, and we do cite that literature quite a lot, but we do not employ the term except for purposes of literature review. In any case, there are plenty of examples of death and suffering not caused by war um, in the dark tourism literature that have little connection to what we're doing in our war-related contents tourism research. So, for example, Jack the Ripper walking tours don't really feel as if they you know, have much relevance for what we're doing in the current project. So, war-related tourism is not dark tourism. And for the most part, we simply sidestep talk of dark tourism and deal in the language and concepts that we feel better describe what we are witnessing. I see. Thank you, Philip, for answering all of my questions. Uh, before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects are currently working on? Well, the uh, war-related contents tourism project should take me through to early next year. I also have a, another couple of papers to get done in the meantime, both on war, post-war and memory issues, both book chapters. Then from next year, I hope to get working on a textbook that will bring together all of the key findings from my over 20 years researching Japanese war memories. I'm finding that uh, with seniority in the department comes an ever heavier managerial load. And these days I'm trying not to overdo research commitments, although I always find it difficult to say no. But I feel I've made a contribution to a couple of areas of Japanese studies now, one within war memory studies and the other in tourism studies. But because I'm into the, the second half of my academic career, as it were, closer to retirement than PhD, um, I want to be you know, writing up my research findings in educational materials rather than simply putting out as many monographs as I can. The monographs are, are aimed at a narrow research audience, of course. Now, the, the older I get, the more I want to be focusing on speaking to the, the people who are closest to me. And by that, I mean you know, the students that I'm meeting each day in the classroom. So I think the, you know, the inability to meet students face-to-face -face for much of the COVID pandemic has really strengthened you know, my feeling that you know, what I want to be you know, focusing on in my writing now is, is education as, as much as, as research. The other thing that I'm trying to devote more time to is the, the writing passion that I had long before I ever became involved in Japanese studies, which is writing music. And um, having reached a certain level of stability in my academic career, I'm, I'm trying to get a bit, bit of a better work-life balance or, or research uh, music balance. Um, but that's how I see the projects going at the moment. But you can see detailed reports on, on how they're all going by looking at my website, philipseaton.net. Excellent. We'll be sure to uh, check that out. Thank you, Philip. It's been a real pleasure. You can find a link to Philip's website in the description below. Next week, we'll be joined by Dr. Igor Prusa, 
lecturer in media studies at the Metropolitan University Prague, to discuss ritualizing scandal. Igor takes us through the surprisingly structured social phenomenon of scandal in Japan, the necessity for tears and a televised confession, and how those who confess can actually come out better for it. We hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening.